Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. We're starting a new sermon series today. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we will be in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to make your way there now, uh, that will be fine. I want to recap a little bit before we get in there. Can you believe that it is March the 19th? That means that two days from now, we will be in spring. <laughs> Some of you are rejoicing up here. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Yes. Uh, it hasn't been that bad of a winter, Denise, I have to let you know. Um, but yes, for your first winter here in Buffalo, I'm glad it's been a pretty smooth one. Um, really, does it seem like this winter season has just flown by? Like when I realized last week that it's the middle of March already, I was talking as if February is just about getting over and all of a sudden, wait a minute, we're in the middle of March here. Uh, I don't know if some of you have this, but Facebook is usually pretty helpful for me to tell me uh, what I've been missing or what has happened to kind of document some things along the way. And so uh, Facebook told me that a year ago, uh, I was the lead pastor of Renewal Church. And so there was a kind of a closing ceremony there the first week in March as we handed the torch over to Dan Davis as uh, the lead pastor there. And so Facebook updated me to that. That was pretty cool. I was like, oh, that's, that's been a year. That's, that's pretty crazy. Uh, Facebook also let me know, uh, and maybe it lets me know when, like, my mom's birthday is. That's helpful. Um, or, you know, your other close friend that you've grown up with your whole life, and, oh, yeah, by the way, it's their birthday today, so you can kind of get those things uh, taken care of. It'll let you know that one year ago today was your anniversary. So that means that, you know, today's your anniversary, and you better get on it really quickly. So those type of things, it helps with that. We looked this, this week, actually last night, uh, five years ago today, Facebook showed me a picture that I posted of uh, my wife, Erin. So our daughter, uh, it's her fifth birthday this week. We have a picture of Erin uh, jumping on the trampoline uh, five years ago uh, this week because it was time and we want that baby to be here. And so we were trying to do whatever means necessary for that to happen. And uh, the Diaz family, uh, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Oh, there you are. Yep, yep, you know exactly what we're talking about. So I want to recap for you pretty quickly just this, this winter season of what we went through from a preaching calendar standpoint. So I think it helps us kind of frame uh, where we're at. When we started in December, the preaching series in December, we started the book of Hebrews. We called it the He is Greater series. And kind of as a synopsis for that was thinking through and looking at uh, Hebrews from the context of what happens at Christmas time. And be able to say, we get distracted often with all the things that go on with Christmas and all the consumerism and all the, uh, the frantic months of Christmas. And sometimes we lose kind of the main point of Christmas. And coming at it from Hebrews and looking back as the author of Hebrews is doing towards what Christmas did, what Jesus being born here uh, as the Son of God, what that changed for all uh, of time going forward. And he said, he is greater. Uh, he is greater than the angels. He is greater than the universe. He is even greater than Christmas Day itself. And so we spent that time in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. And then we went into the new year. We had what we call the resolution series, and that dealt with Hebrews chapters uh, 3 through 6. And you have a new year. We're setting new resolutions and new uh, focuses and trying to get healthy and trying to do different things like that and just setting these resolutions out in front of us and realizing that uh, committing to a new exercise or skill or getting healthy, that's nice. 
But the author of Hebrews again is going to push us towards and push first century readers. It was pushing them towards it as well. But 21st century, as we come back 2,000 years later and look at this book, uh, we're able to look at those priorities and looking at priorities that are not of this world and even not of our generation, but are so much bigger than that. And we really started to see uh, to redefine goal setting and set some goals that have to do with prioritizing Jesus Christ first and foremost above all. And so we resolved together to put him in that first chair, the first seat, in the highest office, even going through the uh, inauguration to say, okay, who's in the highest office now? We said, well, wait a minute, that's important, but let's make sure that we understand who is in the highest seat in all the land, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And then we took a little detour. We headed over to the book of Malachi. We just finished through the book of, of Malachi and the What Does God See series. And really there we, we see the people of Israel and Judah have been exiled and now they come back and they are beginning their worship uh, in the temple and different things like that. And as they're going through that, their selfish behavior starts to take over. And they say, well, this isn't exactly the way that we would have drawn this up. And they start pointing the finger back at God and saying, this is all your fault. And there's six different questions that they ask throughout the book of Malachi. And we took our, our time to go through that and be able to, and honestly, we know that it was, a, it was a rough ride in many ways. And thank you for like sticking with us through that because uh, we realized that we ask those questions too. And God was not easy on the people of Israel. And he was not easy on us as we uh, went through that series. So now we, we come back to the book of Hebrews and we'll be here for a little while. But as we come back to the book of Hebrews, uh, we think that as we're looking at uh, chapter 7 and moving forward, chapter 7 through 10, you'll see the focus that God is putting out here through the author of Hebrews is that he is above all. And he is, uh, as, as we look at it, he is really a better way through his son, Jesus Christ. So each chapter will uncover a very personal uh, God. Uh, someone who wants to interact with us on a daily basis. Someone who is not content with spinning the world into motion and walking away, but no, is going to actually interact with you and with me. And he says, I would be personal. I can connect to you in a personal way. I'm available to you. And you'll see that theme kind of coming up again and again. He has entered into the experience of the human race when he was born here on earth that connected him in a way that no one else has ever been able to because he was both God and man and is both God and man at the same time. And so we will experience how he connects with the human race both intellectually but experientially and physically as well. As we tail off uh, chapter 6 and kind of closed that section, and it's a good launching point for us into the next section. Chapter 6, verse 19 says this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And so as we talk and we think about that, I think that that's a good transitional verse that helps us go into this new series because as we think about an anchor for the soul, many of us have thought about different ways to anchor that on things that are temporal, things of this earth, even the, the visualization of what an anchor is for a ship, it goes down. But here, uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews is really saying, no, that's not the way it is. It anchors up above in, in the holy of holies, in, in the closest innermost parts of heaven. That's where that anchor holds. That's where your hope is. And so there's a better way 
than what you're doing. This morning, our question that we asked as we shook hands this morning had to do with infomercials. And it seems like that's the punchline of every infomercial, right? There's just got to be a better way. And I'm acknowledging that because uh, as we go into this series, Jesus is not just a better way in regards to, well, let me show you this video. You'll see what I mean. You know, Tamara, the Hawaii chair wasn't designed just for home. I mean, after all, for some of us, at least 40 hours of our week is spent sitting behind a desk at the office. So to see what office workers think of the Hawaii chair, we sent Aaron Lee to work. Hi, I'm Aaron Lee with Perfect USA, and today we brought the Hawaii chair to a very busy work environment. Let's get some first-time reactions. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. That feels great on my abs. I can really feel this working. Hawaii chair while answering phones, using the computer, balancing books, or filing paperwork. You can hardly call this work. With the Hawaii chair, it takes the work out of your work day. If you can sit, you can get fit. The Hawaii chair. Thanks, Aaron Lee. If you can sit, then you can get fit, the Hawaii chair. Who knew all this time there was a better way to go about your work day? So I hesitate. So here's why we want to do this, okay? Because as we come into this sermon series, as we look at a better way, I don't want it to feel like I'm selling you the Hawaii chair. I don't want it to feel like, like we're suggesting here's a, a more convenient option for you. No, when we're talking about a better way, at the end of the day, we're talking about much deeper, deeper implications. We're talking about something with eternal implications. And so for hundreds of years, generations have lived and died over everywhere on this planet, believing a religious system many times not Christianity, many times not focused on Jesus Christ. We send missionaries out always. Uh, 30% of what we do here as a church is sending finances and uh, resources and, and things out of these doors to be able to look at the globe and say, okay, how, how can we reach the world for Christ? And in many situations, people are going, missionaries are going into situations where they have generations of religious practices that don't match up with Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is dealing with that very much so. The, the letter is written to Hebrews, to the Jewish people who had a system that they felt was perfectly fine the way that it was. And here comes this author, this writer that says, you know, there is a better way. And that was really difficult for them to comprehend, to understand. And so the framework of what happens here with the author of Hebrews is it builds a framework that they do understand. We have to look at that with, with eyes that realize that 2,000 years that we have had to digest what that really means. 2,000 years we've, we've grown to be comfortable with this idea that Jesus Christ is the better way. 2,000 years to, to be able to grapple and wrestle with things and to actually build our own traditions and our own religious preferences all around that. And so it's become much easier for us to swallow. It's become much easier and much more commonplace and much more accepted. So today we'll be dealing with Melchizedek. 
Now, Melchizedek is, is someone, that we'll dig in there today, and you'll probably admit that you were not highly motivated to learn about Melchizedek when you came to church this morning. Although I did talk with Miss Bonnie while we were shaking hands, and she literally said, I'm so excited you're talking about Melchizedek today. She's the, well, and Miss Nancy too. They are the only ones in this room, most likely, that came in, man, I'm so hungry to learn about Melchizedek. Please teach us about Melchizedek. We don't have that approach, why? Because you've got marriage problems, you've got financial problems, you've got problems with your kids, you've got other very practical and personal things that you're dealing with and Melchizedek is the farthest thing from your mind. We need to acknowledge that today, that, we, that this was probably not what you came in here with today. So why in the world would you be interested in learning about this obscure person in Scripture, this obscure uh, figure from many, many centuries ago named Melchizedek? Well, if you're using your outline, you'll see it in, in your bulletin there. It's a white sheet of paper. It'll help you track through that. We want to make this statement to help, to help you see why it's important. You need to know about Melchizedek because he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you desperately need to know Jesus Christ. You need to know about Melchizedek because he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and you desperately need to know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what you need if you have marriage problems. Jesus Christ is what you need if you have financial problems. Jesus Christ is what you need for your individual hurts, habits, hangups, whatever you're bringing in here today, you need Jesus Christ to get there. And Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ. Now I want to define that for you this morning. I don't have it in your notes, so if you want to scratch this on the side, I think that it's helpful for us to, again, set the stage when I say type, what I mean. So here's the definition of type. When it, it's a technical term, but it's talking about uh, scripture and theology. When I use type, this is what I mean. It's an Old Testament person, practice or ceremony, or even a religious instrument that has a counterpart an anti-type in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, you have a type. It's a practice, it's a ceremony, it's a person, it's an action that in the New Testament, you have what is the anti-type, which is the resolution, which is the balance of the type. Now, when we use the word anti-type, that doesn't mean it's against, uh, that's not a bad thing because it's gonna point to Jesus Christ here as the anti-type. But what that means is that the type has defined the anti-type. The type has illustrated the anti-type. And so some examples of that. So types are imperfect and temporary. Anything on this side is imperfect and temporary, and the anti-type is perfect and eternal. So imperfect, temporary, perfect, and eternal. So there's some things that we see in the Old Testament that are types. We see a sacrificial lamb. That is a type, it is demonstrative of who would come later as the sacrificial lamb for your sins and for mine. And we, and we see in the Old Testament, we see the scapegoat that would come and it would be responsible for sins of the people. And we see that in the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ. He is the scapegoat. He is the one who stood in our place even though he did nothing wrong. That, that lamb, that goat had done nothing wrong. They were perfect without blemish and yet they were slaughtered for sin. 
We also see the temple. The temple was built multiple times, and we see the temple as a place of worship or the tabernacle and this, this place of worship that would go here. And in the New Testament, we see that the temple is no longer a place, but it's in you and it's in me. So that is the anti-type of the type that we see in the Old Testament. You see that balance? And so as we make our way forward, we need to understand that we do not worship the type. We do not sing uh, worship songs to Melchizedek. Uh, today we, we sang a song by Paul Balash, I bring an offering of worship to my king. No one on earth deserved the praises that I sing. Melchizedek, may you receive the honor that you're due. No. Why? Because he is an illustration. He is a type that points us to the anti-type, Jesus. We worship Jesus. It would be absurd. It would be just as absurd as the Hawaii chair. And we don't have that mindset. You understand that we get caught there. We start worshiping the practice. We start worshiping the tools. We start worshiping uh, communion, which we'll be having in a couple of weeks. When we, when we celebrate communion together, we cannot worship the tool, but we have to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. So who is Melchizedek? We need to acknowledge that, yes, in Scripture, he is an obscure Personality. There's only a very small number of verses actually about this man. In Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. And then he's referred to again a few times here in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, 6, and 7. There's a lot that deals with this priest and king, Melchizedek. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews is sitting down having his quiet time or her quiet time. We don't know whether it's a man or a woman who wrote this book. We don't know the author but as, as they're sitting down having their quiet time and having their cup of coffee and, and studying through God's word, it was like an aha moment that something just popped out of scripture. This Melchizedek just popped out and they felt like that they should demonstrate really how they see, how they see Jesus. So if you're going with fill-ins with us this morning, here's your first fill-in. Who is Melchizedek? He was the king of Salem and he was a priest of God. He was the king of Salem he was a priest of God. Hebrews chapter 7, if you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, let me look up your number for you so you can make your way there. Page 1258, if you're using that pew Bible in front of you, if you're using an app, a version app or something like that, we're in the New International Version today, New International Version, that way we can all be on the same page. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. Verse 2, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also it means king of Salem, and it means king of peace. Without mother or father, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Let me summarize for you what is going on here of what, what this author maybe in their morning devotions was reading from. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm in Genesis chapter 14, but I'm just going to kind of summarize what's going on there. In Genesis chapter 13, Abram and his uh, nephew, Lot, are there and they're looking at the land. They're having so many people in their tribe that is now beginning to overwhelm them. And, they say, and, and Abram looks at Lot and says, you know what, why don't we pick different parts to live in here? And Lot looks down in the valley that we know now is the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he looks down there and he says, that's, that's a nice place to live. It looks easy. And so he's going to move there to Sodom. 
And Abraham moves to the countryside where it was a little bit more difficult to do uh, his work, but that was where he was satisfied with that. He said, Lot, you go your way, I'll go mine. We won't be in, in uh, opposition with one another. We'll go our separate ways. That happens in Genesis chapter 13. Then Genesis chapter 14, the kings have assembled in the region and they have actually come and, and warred against the city of Sodom as, as Lot is living in it. And they attack the city and they, they pillage the city and they take everything out of it. They win the battle and they, they take everything away and along with what they take away as spoils of war, they take Lot and his family and they take them away. And as they do this, there is one of his servants escapes and makes his way back over here to Abram. He's not called Abraham yet. His name is Abram. And he comes back to him and lets him know what has happened. And Abraham, Abram, excuse me, he gets together all of his uh, men that he has working for him and his clan that he has. And he goes and he wars against the kings who have come and taken Lot away and returns, wins the battle and returns back with the spoils of that battle and comes back and, and takes Lot back to his home and, and returns him there. And now he has in many ways the, the pile, the booty of war. And so he's got this there in front of him. And the king from Sodom comes out to visit with him. He comes out because now there's this big war chest. So he's the king that has just lost the battle to the enemy king, but now Abraham has, has saved the day, and so he has come out. And right at the same time, there's this obscure scripture in Genesis chapter 14 where this king of Salem, Melchizedek, also comes and meets with Abraham. And as he meets with him, he works with him, he talks with him, and he blesses him in the name of God because of what God has done. He, he puts a blessing on him. And this man of peace, he's also described there in Genesis as well as a priest of God and a king. He's described in that way. And as he, as he blesses Abraham, Abraham responds by giving 10% of this war chest, giving it to the king of Salem. And then the king of Sodom makes his way up and says, well, well what are you going to do with the rest of it? And you know the rest of the story if you go there. You can read it for yourself, Genesis Chapter 14, continuing. But what actually is set as a precedent, because Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, is this 10% that he gave to the king as a gracious, because he had been blessed by God. God had blessed him and used Salem and used this king of Salem to, to administer that blessing. And in doing so, he said, you know, I'm going to give 10% of all that I have back to you as the king. So as he does that, uh, we see here in verse 3, it says, without mother or father, without genealogy. So there's no documentation as to who this king is or where he comes from. And the author of Hebrews makes that connection to who Jesus is, is without mother and father. And he, and he goes a different direction there. But he makes a kind of a unique statement about the fact that there's no documentation on who this king of Salem is, Melchizedek, who this priest of God is, Melchizedek. And that's a very unique thing. I think it's a good opportunity for us to look at generally what's going on in the Bible because Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is connecting some pieces for us. Let's talk briefly about it. In the history of this church, 
uh, Reverend Arthur Williams in 1928 said that we believe that we will celebrate the Bible, the blood, and the blessed hope. 1928, that was here, the pastor here. So he said, those are the three things that we are going to bring to the forefront. We're no different than that today. And actually, I've had conversations with Al Maurer as we set up some things around here. And if you look behind me here, here off to uh, the back, if I back up here, you can see it. Uh, there are three things that we as Baptists or we as believers actually celebrate here as a church as well. And it's in front of you every week and sometimes you may not see it. So I want to point it out to you this morning. If you look at the cross back there, you will see that in front of it is the Bible. And then behind it is a baptismal pool, believer's baptism. And we get to celebrate that next week. Actually, if you're here with us next week, uh, Maria is going to be baptized. You can celebrate with us there. So we've got the Bible and then we have believer's baptism. And then we have the cross that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you and for me. That is demonstrated every week when you come and go. Why? Because those are the most important things for us. But we need to be reminded that that big Bible that's up there should be a reminder to us of what is the Bible and why do we set it as a forefront and why is that something that drives everything that we do? Well, we believe that the Bible is absolutely true. We believe that every word that you find in Scripture is absolutely God-breathed. And because it is, then we have to drive that into our lives, drive it deep so that we understand what to do going forward. But sometimes we lose sight of what the Bible really is. You see, the Bible is not just one book. It's a collection of books. Uh, it is like your iPad or iPhone music library in many ways. Like there's this library of books, uh, but we call it a completed library because it's the canon and there's 66 books of the Bible. And the Bible lays out as this collection. So you have the law, which is the beginning of the Bible, the first five books. You've got Genesis through Deuteronomy. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, which I try to do on an annual basis, if you, if you do that, you get bogged down a little bit in that process. And it should just be a good reminder so that you know there's different portions of Genesis and Exodus that are very much story told. They are narrative. They, they just roll off really easily and it's easy to read. But then there's actually like reference material that is there in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's, it's like reading the phone book or reading a dictionary. It's not, it's not necessarily designed to be read the same way that Genesis or Exodus is designed to be read, but it is designed to be there to support what you are reading. And then you make your way into the history books, Joshua, all the way through Esther, just kind of tell you the history of God's people. And then you can look at uh, poetry or wisdom literature of Job and Psalms and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We spent some time there last summer. And then you get the major prophets of Isaiah through Daniel, the minor prophets of Hosea through Malachi. We just finished Malachi just last week. And you have these prophets that are really telling the people have gotten astray and they're off track and they need to get back on track. And you get into the New Testament and you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you've got this book of Acts, which is the history book of the early church. And so again, that reads really easily. It's exciting. There's a lot of things going on. There's shipwrecks. There's uh, people speaking in tongues and there's flames of fire and there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's very exciting. Kind of make your way through that. And then you get into these letters that Paul wrote, the epistles uh, that Paul sends these letters out to the churches. And Sometimes those can be a little bit more difficult to read because they're a little bit more technical. And then you get into the other books as well. They've been written, the letters that were written to all the churches, James through Jude. 
And then the final book of Revelation that John, uh, he, he, the revelation of John, then we call it the book of Revelation, of what he sees while he's in exile to say this is the way that it all comes to a close. I say that because really what you see here with the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is just kind of running back and forth within all of these books, within all of these, this collection, this library. And the author of Hebrews has a vast understanding of all and just kind of sprinting back and forth and saying, you've got to see this guy Melchizedek. He shows up over here 2,000, oh, I should go this way because you're left to right, 2,000 years, 2,000 years before Christ. You've got Abram and you've got this guy Melchizedek. And in a moment when we turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 110, you get in the middle, you say, now this is a thousand years. A thousand years has passed. Now there's a thousand years later that we talk about, guess who? Melchizedek. He says, look at this library. Look how it all connects. And then fast forward again, and we'll see in just a moment in Matthew, when Jesus refers back. So a thousand years later, in Jesus' time frame, he's referring back. He's connecting all of these pieces. And the author of Hebrews says, pay attention. Pay attention, there's a bigger story being told here. Look at how all of these things interact and connect, and yet not one word is astray. Do you see it? Do you see what he's trying to do? And so as the Bible lays out this collection and the author of Hebrews connects us across all of these things, he refers to Melchizedek as what? The king of righteousness and the king of Salem, which he defines and he says that means the king of peace. So your second fill-in is that today. He is the king of peace, and he was a blessing of God. So now the author of Hebrews is going to jump you back, all the way back again, and point you to what happened with Abraham. Chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth to the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who have become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descendants from Abraham. So again, the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is talking about the current context that they're living in right then. Verse 6, this man, however, going back 2,000 years, did not trace his descendants from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So be reminded that this, this blessing, you can only bless if you are the greater one, blessing the lesser one is what the author is saying here. And in the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who will die, but in other cases, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because of Melchizedek, met Abraham. Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. A little bit complicated there. I don't want to get too caught in, in the details of this, okay? But what is happening, the author of Hebrews is looking back 2,000 years and he say, isn't it strange that when Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, he paid this tithe, he paid this tenth to Melchizedek, and that practice carries on and carries forward. But Melchizedek, the Levi, the people of Levi, were not even born yet. They weren't even discovered until later. They were, they were not even in existence yet. And yet that precedent is set. Why? Because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Melchizedek himself is not who's important. It's who he's pointing to, Jesus Christ. It's who he's pointing to, Jesus Christ. When Melchizedek came, he blessed Abram. But Melchizedek was only a small piece of the puzzle. Melchizedek had no idea what would transpire over the next 2,000 years. He just showed up 
and he blessed Abram because what God was doing in his life. He had no idea that Abraham would become the father of many nations, the nation of Israel. He had no idea, but God did. You see, God's plan was to use Melchizedek. God's plan was to use Melchizedek to do what? To point to the Messiah 2,000 years later, the Messiah who would come, and Melchizedek would be one of those supporting characters, that type that would point people right back to Jesus again. So who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? He is, this is a fill-in, he is the king of kings. He is the son of God. He is the king of kings. He is the son of God. I do want you to take your Bibles, if you will. Will you turn over to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew chapter 22. And let me set a framework here for what's going on. It's a very uh, common uh, passage that we're looking at here, but I want you to see it in the bigger context. So the Pharisees, the lawyers of the day, they, they try to trap Jesus. Uh, they, have, uh, they have experienced him and his disciples to be unlearned men. And so they are trying to kind of go after him with some of the very specific uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's of the Old Testament law and trying to trap him. And so they ask him, they say, well, what's the most important commandment? And if you've grown up in the church at all, you know that his response is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang or hinge on these two commandments. As a matter of illustration for you, I, I just love that, that concept of hinging. Everything hinges on those. And if you're in your kitchen, you'll see that your kitchen cabinets, generally speaking, have two hinges on it. And when you open that cabinet, that cabinet works because there's two hinges on it. And when you open it, you get your cup of coffee in the morning and you close it, there's two hinges on that thing to spin back and forth. And Jesus has literally taken all of the law, all of the prophets, all of that Old Testament material, and he says all of it can be summed up in this. They all hinge on these two things. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And in some of the other gospels, then we go into, well, who is my neighbor? And you hear the story of the Good Samaritan. But after they have grilled him, and after he has come out and he has answered the question, not only uh, in a good way, he actually did, shows and demonstrates that he knows more about the Old Testament law than any one of them to be able to actually categorize it in these two chunks. Then he says, can I ask you a question? Let me ask you a question. Verse 41 of chapter 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and Jesus is quoting now from Psalm 110, for he says, the Lord saith to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You see, they'd been waiting for the coming Messiah. They had been waiting 2,000 years for the coming Messiah. Now the Messiah was sitting right in front of them, 
And he is pointing to the very scriptures in which they had tried to trap him and said, wait, let's talk about this scripture, the one that prophesies the Messiah to come. And, and David himself says that he is calling him Lord. How do you handle that? Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Because in Psalm 110, as he quotes there, the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. Do you know what else Psalm 110 says? It says, you are a priest, talking about Messiah who is to come, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You see the connection. Jesus is defining himself as that type that was, that was talked about in the Old Testament. That type is bringing you to this day. I'm sitting in front of you right now, not just a son of David, but literally the son of God. And just the way that the order of Melchizedek pointed forward, it was pointing to me, Jesus Christ. Turn over, if you will, back to the book of Hebrews. And when we started the first chapter of Hebrews, back at the beginning of the winter, this was what we read in chapter 1, verse 1. And your fill-in is this. He is, who is Jesus? He is the king of glory. He is the exact representation of God. We just sang uh, before I came out here, Revelation song, where it says, who is the, this king of glory? And we sing of that. Uh, he is the exact representation of God. Verse one, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Verse three, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is no longer a typeset. He is no longer an illustration. He is the exact representation of God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In the last days, it says, the author of Hebrews is pointing and he's saying, in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son, who we just looked at, it was Jesus Christ. Let the angels worship him. Let all stand before him. Oh God, your throne is forever and ever and ever and ever. Why do we need to know about Melchizedek? Why do we need to focus any time there on really what is, we acknowledge, is a very small little piece of scripture. But what Genesis chapter 14 says, and then what is said here is that, Gen, that Melchizedek is a priest and is a king. Those two things do not coincide naturally. And the only time that we see that is in Melchizedek who is pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is our priest and our king. A priest, the responsibility of a priest was to understand the people, to go on behalf of the people. 
And what we see here in Hebrews chapter 1 is the definition of that is that as he goes before, as he goes before God, who is the exact representation of, he is demonstrating us. Why? Because he is fully man and fully God, and he is the connecting piece that Melchizedek was forecasting. So we need to know about Melchizedek, not so we have a nice history lesson, but that we understand the role that Jesus plays. There's much more to the Son of God than just being in relationship with a nice guy or a good leader. He is the Son of God. If we want blessings, we should expect that those are going to come through a relationship with the Son of God. We should seek them in Christ because as many as the promises of God, so is He. As the band comes up, as we close this time today, and as we've, we've looked at Melchizedek, I don't expect you to walk away with a great understanding of Melchizedek. That's okay. But I do want you to have a great understanding of Jesus Christ. Because we do not worship Melchizedek. We do not need to get ourselves wrapped up in who Melchizedek is unless we are seeing Jesus Christ's face in that unless we see him as an illustration of what it looks like for there to be a king and a priest acting on your behalf and on mine. So what do you need? Eternal life, yes. What do you need? Forgiveness of sins, yes. Inner peace, yes. Grace to endure, yes. Hope, Yes. Victory when the battle is won? Yes. Healing from the past wounds? Yes. And who do you go to for that? Where, is the, where do you find that? You find it in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect high priest. He dispenses God's blessings to all who will follow his promises. Draw near to him. That is where you hook your anchor of hope. That's where you connect. If you're here this morning and you've heard this before, good. Anchor down. Hold on. But you also have to remember, there are those, and you may be in this room here today, that look at that type of understanding or that type of desire for a holy God with as much skepticism as we look at the infomercial about the Hawaii chair. Because they feel as though you're saying, well, there's just, sure, there's a better way, whatever. What are you trying to sell me? But Jesus Christ is so much more than a sales pitch. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray that your word has come alive this morning. We pray that there would be someone here this morning that they've been struggling, they've been fighting through life. That they would realize that there is a better way. Your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for their sins. That gift of God for eternal life is there and tangible and reachable because of what Jesus has done. There may be some here, Lord, who have known that truth for years and years, 
just continue to go through life with white knuckles, just trying their hardest, but never giving control and surrendering over that he is their king. So Lord, this morning we ask that you would touch hearts. You would touch hearts to put you first as king and then to be able to connect hearts as a priest would, Lord, as our priest, as our mediator, as our representation in heaven, Lord, that we would just latch on to you there as well. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the author of Hebrews. We thank you for this man, Melchizedek, that he could point us back to you. Lord, we pray that that would be our lives' focus and our lives' dreams. That 100 years from now, when our name is stated publicly, that the legacy would be that individual, they pointed me to Jesus Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.